thank you for opening our eyes today and for the many blessings that you have provided for each one of us, Lord. We pray for those absent or yet still on their way, and we pray, God, that as we look into your words, speak to all of our hearts. Let our hearts be good soil. Give us ears to hear. Let me speak clearly, and I pray that the Word of God would minister in a powerful, powerful way in Jesus' name, and everyone say, Amen, Amen. You can be seated. So this evening, we're going to go over to Romans chapter 13. That's where we're going to begin, and we'll work on some things out of the first four verses. This morning, we were at an elementary school down in Hayes, and they had the whole see you at the pole deal, where all of the Christians in the schools get together and then they pray at the high school, the middle school, and then the elementary school. So we went over to the elementary school, and it was just so cute to watch those little first graders through sixth graders get down on their knees and begin to pray, praying for faculty, praying for the nation. Some of the ones from our church down there, they prayed loud and strong. And some of the other ones were a lot more silent, less confident, and prayed without a a, a lot of uh, exuberance at all. But the main thing I told the kids was just just pray. That's all. Just pray and talk to God. Well, when we think about that flagpole and we think of our nation, then, of course, we, we realize that our flag doesn't represent the kingdom of God but the kingdom of God has its own banner, a blood-stained banner. Nevertheless, we should do like Paul said, which is to pray for people that are in positions of authority. And what I want us to work on this evening as we look into the Scripture, I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about God and government. So in Romans chapter 13, look at verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or condemnation. Or we'll even say judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now you'll notice in verse 1 it speaks about being subject to higher powers. That lets us know that There always is someone who's over us, an authoritative figure that's in a position of influence and a position of power, and to be subject to or to be submissive to is a very important thing because you can't have a country, you can't have a nation without submission. You can't even have a community, you can't have a church, you can't have a family without submission. 
Well, if, if we take this historically and, and, and work on this question, when did government begin, then we find ourselves all the way back in Genesis because you remember when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to them, you are to exercise dominion over all of this. So he gave them that region to govern and to execute influence upon that particular region. Once they were cast out of the garden because of sin, you'll remember he said to them that the earth would yield thistles and thorns, and then he talked about the lady, how she would give birth in sorrow. The man would labor with sweat. And then as the scripture tells us, Adam and Eve started having children. So as the children were born into this world, Cain and Abel understood by virtue of the fact they were being cared for by mom and dad, that mom and dad were the governing figures in the home. So the first institution of government was that of the family, a mom and a dad. And, and this is exactly the pattern that God once continued from Genesis to Revelation. It shouldn't be the kids ruling the family. It should be the parents governing the home. When, when things are upside down, then, of course, then the, the parents are terrified of the kids. And some of you have probably seen that. And in some cases where the parents are not terrified by the kids, you've seen instances where rather than wanting to be a mom and a dad, the parents want to be their children's friends. And if you want to be their friends, that's still different because a friend doesn't typically rule or govern another person. But a child that comes into this world instantly knows who's in charge. Now, however you raised your kids and whatever your house was like, I can assure you I always knew who was in charge in our home. My mom and dad made certain that I knew I didn't have any authority. In fact, I hear young people today, they'll say things like, well, uh, my mom and dad know not to go into my room because that's my private space. I never had anything like that. I never had any any private space. In fact, my mom and dad would go into my drawers and into my closet with me standing there. And they didn't bother to ask me anything. Well, if if they're the governing parents and I'm the one that's subject to them, if I get out of line, then they have the right from God to discipline me. Now, this is a right that comes to parents even if the parents don't even know God because the Scripture makes it very plain that if there are any powers, those powers that exist have been ordained by God. So the only reason there is authority and order in communities and in families and in churches and in nations today is because God established the whole power factor. Now let's look again at verse 1 of Romans 13. There's no power but of God, the powers that be ordained of God. So whoever resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they'll receive to themselves damnation and will also say judgment. They will receive to themselves judgment. 
So just by way of a question, in your home when you were growing up, if your mom and dad gave a command and said, do not do this, or they told you, you must do this, if you made the decision to say, I don't care what you said, I'm not going to do it, what, what would happen in your home? What would have happened in the wood home growing up? It been difficult, yeah? And, I, and I'm sure in the Kugler home it would have been, been difficult because the governing person is the mom and dad. And when they establish the word, when you run contrary to what they've declared for you to do, if you don't do it, then you're going to have to face the judgment that comes with disobedience. So this is the principle that goes all the way back to Genesis. The Lord said to Adam and Eve, of every tree of this garden you can eat except this one. This one is mine. And, of course, you know that's where temptation begins because once God prohibits someone from doing something, the devil comes along and he makes it enticing, and then you want the very thing God has said is forbidden for you to have. But when they disobeyed God, God in his mercy covered them up with animal skins but God, through his justice, put them out of the garden. And that's important to know. We're in Romans 13, working through some of these verses on God and government. So resist the ordinance, and you'll face disciplinary procedures. Presently, in our country, most people under 40, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, there's a sizable group of people under 40 who do not believe in disciplining, disciplining their children at all. And if, if we read the Bible, if we quote the Bible, then what they'll typically say is, well, for that time, that is what was needed. Now, my wife has a good friend who's been a psychologist at a... Um, at a prison for a long time, or had been for a good while, and she said many of these people wouldn't even be in jail had somebody spanked them, had somebody told them no. See? And, and you think about that. You look at what takes place on television each day when we have what recently happened in Philadelphia, a 100 kids going into stores and smashing and grabbing. You look at what takes place in California where the average young person can go into any kind of store, and if it's less than $1,200, they can rob, they can take it, and they will not be prosecuted. This kind of undisciplined stuff is, is, is a product of a generation that hasn't been disciplined or doesn't fear discipline. Now, if, if, if when I was a kid or a teenager and... Some kids would have went into a store and broke the windows and robbed and looted and came running out with stuff with television cameras. And if they would have had phones back then and phones and stuff like that, I can tell you right now, 6 p.m. on the news, if my mom and dad would have seen me coming out of the store carrying something, my life would have practically been over. Because... They would have said to me, you know better. This is not how he raised you. But since you've done it, now you've got to face the discipline. 
and it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been easy at all. So a society that wants to say you're not wrong because of what you've done, or as I heard one newscaster say when these people were breaking in and stealing all this stuff, they're just shopping without money. No, they were robbing. That's what they were doing. They were robbing. They, they were stealing. Verse 2 of Romans 13 makes it very plain. If you resist the ordinance of God, if you resist the authority figures and the commandments that are placed there, then you receive to yourself judgment, condemnation. You'll stand before the courts and you'll be condemned for your action. I've told you before, the sign out there that says 65 is not a suggestion. That's the limit. And the person who chooses to do 80 is going to get pulled over. When they get pulled over, there will be assigned a ticket. You can complain, you can cry, but when you go to court, because you refuse to obey, you're going to have to pay that fine. And if you get enough tickets, you get points on your license. If you get enough points, you won't have a license anymore. Now, a person could complain. But that doesn't change anything, and it's the same thing with the Word of God. As a Christian, there are specific laws in the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God, that we have to abide by. The Bible says faith works by love. So if I choose to be mean-spirited, and I don't want to walk in a love that covers a multitude of sins, then quite naturally my faith is not going to function the way it should function in accordance with the Word of God. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, he's not saying 24 hours a day you've got to be on your knees praying. But he is saying that you have to maintain a life of prayer and seeking God, communicating with God, and talking with God. When the Scripture says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that again, that's not a suggestion, that's a command. And it says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, lest your prayers be hindered. So that tells me if I don't live with her the way I'm supposed to, then no matter how much faith I have and how much strength I have, my prayers are hindered because of my disobedience. So then it's clear from Scripture if we have God and we have government, then we'll have order. You remove government, then you won't have order. And in any fellowship or local church where you don't have governing figures, then you oftentimes have chaos and disorder. Everybody can't be a deacon or an elder. Everybody in the body of Christ won't be a fivefold ministry uh, a preacher. Everyone in the body of Christ is not going to be a trustee. Everybody in the church is not going to be the one that cleans or does this or does that. People will be appointed. God will call and assign tasks. But where there's order, there's typically peace. So in your physical body, how many bones do we have in this body? 206? 206 bones in this body. Nobody knows how many muscles or tendons or arteries or veins, but I do know this. If everything functions the way it's supposed to function, you'll have fluid motion in your body, and you won't have any pain. But pain is an indicator that something's out of order. So whether it's your hip, your shoulder, your knee, whether it's something related to your foot, if, if you've got pain, there's something that is not functioning the way it's supposed to be, or there's something that's under attack. So several months ago, I had to, I had what they call, uh, from one of my trips, 
I can't, I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce it right, like a plantar fasciitis or something like that. So that, that, that long little, little thing that goes under the bottom of the feet that, that kind of gives you some good stability and stuff like that, that thing tightens up and becomes tense and then with just about every step you take, it, it begins to hurt. And since like me, going back to my military days, I didn't, I don't have arches in my feet. I pretty much got flat feet. So these people were kind enough at the office, the foot doctor, to give me some uh, inserts into the shoe, which would then help alleviate that pain. And then so once the pain was gone, then I stopped using the arches. But here's the thing. The, the moment I put the arches in the shoe and started walking on them, I had no more pain. But when I took the arches out and I was walking and my foot was still tender, I still had a little bit of pain. And, of course, I knew how to tough it out, so I know how to walk and act like I don't have any pain at all, even though I feel like I'm at a level 12 and the pain is going 1 to 10. Well, yeah. So order, harmony, peace is absolutely essential. And if we have the authority figures in our life the way it's supposed to be, there'll be peace. And if God is the one governing our life, then we'll have the harmony and accord that we need with him in functioning and flowing with the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to be used by him. Look at verse 3. A ruler is not a terror to good works but to evil. That means the people that ought to be afraid are the ones being disobedient. My dad, when he used to go on them short trips to the Bahamas or uh, New Orleans or wherever he had to go for boxing, I've told you, he, he'd say to me, he said, Daryl, I'm going to be gone for four days. And here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. Trim bushes, whatever I had to do. Paint something, fine. So my mom would take him to the airport, sometimes she didn't. Sometimes he'd drive, just leave the car there. Then when he flew back in, he'd pick the car up and drive back home. Well, I mean, there were plenty of times he went on that trip, and I'm telling you, I just, I did not get on top of that stuff the way I was supposed to. And, and I lollygagged. And I, I shouldn't have, and I, I know that I shouldn't have, but I was able to get away with it because my mom, she worked from basically 7 a.m., if not earlier, until 5 o'clock in the evening. So when she came home, she made dinner, got herself ready for bed, then she had to get up the next day. So she, she wasn't on me about a whole lot of stuff, and she didn't know a lot of the things I needed to do. Well, come that last day, then I'd remember I've got to get all these things done. So I'm telling you, I'm out there trying to do everything I can. <laughs> And, I mean, I'm painting, I'm, I'm trimming the, the bushes along the side of the house and all of this kind of stuff. And, and I know there's no way I'm going to get all of this done before he comes from that airport to the house. It's only about a 25, 30 minute, 30 minute drive. But the whole time he was driving, I was hoping he'd get a flat tire. Let somebody bump his car or something, just anything that could, that could slow him down because I knew I had not done everything he told me to do. Now, on the occasion when he went and, and I got everything done, I couldn't wait for him to come. I wanted him to see everything that I had accomplished. So my father was not a terror to me when I was obedient. The people that don't want to deal with God are the ones that, that are disobedient, like Ananias and Sapphire. 
The ones that don't want to deal with, with the king are the ones who hadn't been doing everything they were supposed to do. And it reminds me of Brother Clendenin one time, preacher down in Beaumont, Texas, preached for over 60 years. He had to, when he was a young man in his 20s, had to go to the hospital and pray for an old elderly preacher. And he said he got to that preacher's bed, and he came there to pray for the man, and the preacher looked so fearful about dying. And that, that, that old preacher laying there, he just clutched that young preacher almost like he didn't want him to leave. And so Brother Clendenin said he was in that 5 o'clock prayer meeting the next morning. He's talking to God, and he's saying, God, I, I don't understand this. How can a man preach the gospel for six decades and then come to the end of his life? And rather than it being a happy time, he just seems like he's afraid to step into eternity. And God spoke to his heart. He believes and said to him, that's because now he's got to come face me and he hadn't done all I told him to do. You see? Think about that. He's got to come face me now. It doesn't mean he's going to miss heaven. It just means there's going to be a time of judgment because you haven't done everything the king's told you to do. So so remember that then. When, when we're thinking about uh, the courts and when we're thinking about mayors and judges, a lot of times people... They, they want to remove from the court system any kind of fear factor when an alleged criminal steps in. But when a criminal steps in, he should be afraid because of what can come down on his life if he's guilty of something. That judge who sits up there, he's able to hand out a death sentence. He's able to hand out 10 years. He's able to show mercy. He's able to put somebody on probation. And you've noticed as well as I do, some of these people who are the wildest and craziest in the way they dress and act when they get in court and they're with a lawyer, you see they got their hair all combed and slicked back and they've got a suit on because they know in front of that judge, that judge don't care anything about their persona outside the court. And he doesn't care anything about their fan club. You're in front of a judge now and you're going to give an account for the things that you have actually done. Well, this is how it works with God. Well, let's go in the Old Testament quickly. Let's go to Deuteronomy 17. I want to show you something. I'm going to move a little faster now. Deuteronomy being the fifth book of that Old Testament. God knew that when Israel, I'm going to start with verse 14. God knew that when Israel came into the promised land that they were going to want a king. And you can see in verse 14, this is what he says. When you come into the land that I'll give you and you'll possess it and dwell therein, you will say, I will set a king over me. So this is the prophecy. God already knew before they entered the promised land. They were still in the wilderness. He knew their hearts were going to change because of Samuel's sons. He knew that there would come a time when they would not want him to be the ruler over them and Samuel to be the judge. They want to be like the other countries. And when, when a nation has its eyes on other nations that are not necessarily godly, that's never a good thing. Verse 15, Thou shalt in any wise set a king over you, whom the Lord your God shall choose, one from among your brethren. Now, if you've never known this, these next verses I'm about to read, these are the reasons our Constitution is the way that it is with regard to who can become president. These verses right here. Verse number 15. 
You may not set a stranger over you. That means a, a foreigner. You have to have someone that leads you and governs you who is a citizen of the population. We, we, could, we could never have, according to our Constitution today, somebody cross the border as a, as a foreigner who, who has come here illegally and then go right to the White House. The laws of the land don't permit that. The laws of the land don't even permit them to go become a mayor like that. And the reason for that is because God wants someone to rule the people who is from the people, who is like the people, who speaks the people's language, who understands the people and the culture. So the children of Israel having a covenant with God that was established when they came out of Egypt and they received the Ten Commandments, God would not have a Canaanite or a Hittite immigrate into the children of Israel and then become their king. It can't happen. So if you look at the history of Israel, you'll see that the majority of the people that they had were Israelite folks, descendants of Abraham that had a covenant with him. Notice verse 16. He shall not multiply horses to himself. That means he won't enrich himself. A person who's in a position of authority is not supposed to use that throne or that position to enrich themselves. Do politicians do that today? Of course they do. Contrary to the laws of the land, contrary to the scripture. In fact, you, you'll notice that the average politician in America, a congressman or a senator, they'll go to Capitol Hill sometimes and they may not even be worth $100,000 with all of their assets and their home and everything else. But after they've been there five years, ten years, millionaires. How does this happen? Because they have the inside track on laws that are going to be made, how it's going to affect different businesses and companies, and they oftentimes, basically like gambling, they start investing in that. And this is why even to this day, the 530-some people that are up there on Capitol Hill, they refuse to pass a law that says they themselves cannot invest in the companies that they're controlling, that they're passing laws for. That's, that's why that is the way it is today. And, and it's, a, it's a sad situation because God never wanted anybody to enter into a political realm and then enrich themselves this way. Verse 16, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Why in the world do you want to lead them back into bondage? I'm bringing them out. I promised the land to Abraham, so don't you try to send them back into the place that I've delivered them from. So we then, as Christians, understand Egypt to be a spiritual place of bondage. Why would we lead people out of bondage into redemption only to turn around and send them back into their addictions, back into their problems? And anyone who does that, that's wrong. I think a man or woman who comes out of alcohol and, and, and it's formerly been an alcoholic or a drunk, if they're connected with you when they come visit you or they come to stay with you, you ought not have in your house liquor in your refrigerator. Why would you make that available to them and, and possibly entice them with that? You see, that's the return to Egypt. Well, I've heard people say, well, that was his problem. That, that, that wasn't my problem. That was my son's problem, but not necessarily my problem. Well, whether it was your son or daughter's problem doesn't really make any difference. You shouldn't put Egypt in front of him so that he'll be tempted again to go to Egypt and return to Egypt. Okay? Well, notice 
verse number 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Now, that's true. You can see from that verse, it never was God's plan for people to get involved with all that polygamy stuff they were doing under the old covenant. Never was. And even today, people still do this. You have people with multiple wives around the world in the Middle East and other places where they have two or three different spouses. But I'll give you another way to look at this. If we take the Scripture as it is commonly interpreted, we who've been full gospel for a long time know that when you got married, you stayed married, and if you got a divorce, when was the only time you could remarry? When they passed away. Romans, see? When they passed away. But, but now you, you watch what has, has taken place, and, of course, Jesus gives the exit for the cause of adultery, if somebody's cheating. But, but we've lived long enough to see now a preacher married three, four, five times, and all of the spouses are alive. See? All of them are alive. What, what have they done? They have multiplied wives to themselves. And there's, there's a reason the Lord said we weren't supposed to do this when it came to the marriage and divorce. Read Matthew 19, then go back into the Old Testament and follow it. It's because when you do that, you defile the land. You say, how do you defile the land? We have 900 some odd people here, uh, 100 or so people in Innervale, maybe a couple of hundred in God Rock, 1,500 to 1,700 in Superior, maybe 800 in Blue Hill. Imagine if... I married someone here, then it broke up. Then I married someone in Innerville, then it broke up. Then I married somebody in Superior, then it broke up. Then I married somebody in Blue Hill, then it broke up. But with all of them, I had two or three kids. And imagine if, if you multiply not just me doing that, but about 200 people doing that. Can you see what that would do to the small towns and the communities? So this is why the Lord said... He should not multiply wives to himself, and this is why the citizens, the male citizens of Israel, shouldn't do that either. And then verse 17 again, uh, in another way, talks about enriching himself by not multiplying silver and gold. But verse 18, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he'll write him a copy of this law in a book of that which is before the priests and the Levites. Wouldn't you love to have a president that sat down and copied the Bible by hand? That would be nice. We, we don't have that, but, but this here is the reason why when our presidents swear in, they put their hand on the book. This is why. They put their hand on the book. And you can go back and read some of the old letters from our founding fathers and see these were the texts, these were the scriptures that were very important to them to help them to try to put in a position somebody that would be godly. So our founding fathers said, look, we have a republic if we can keep it. But the only way we can keep it, we've got to have godly leadership. And once you dispense with godly leadership, you can't keep a godly republic. So we, we're a democracy in the sense that every individual is allowed to vote, one person, one vote, but we have an electoral college, and we're a republic in the sense that we have an electoral college. 
Because if everything was entirely dominated by the majority, then the minority wouldn't even have a voice sometimes. So look at our nation right now. We've got 50-some-odd states, and we've got thousands of cities, and most presidential candidates, when they run for office, they already know if they're on the liberal side, they basically only need to win six to eight states. California, New York, the ones along the coast. But if you're on the conservative side, you've got to have a you've got to you've got to run the gamut from North Dakota on down to Texas, and then you've got to take all the Bible Belt states. And 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 the thing is. The way it operates, because the smaller populations are out here in rural America in the heartland and the larger concentrations are in the big cities, this is why the big cities very often have the influence over the rest of us, but it's because we're a republic that you're not supposed to just have two or three big cities controlling the whole nation. And if we hadn't had an electoral college, then we'd have long ago lost this thing because everybody in the big cities would have just took over and ran it. So it was wise the way it was set up, because the people who don't agree with what they're doing in Wichita and Kansas City, they can't control the whole state of Kansas because Kansas can put state legislatures there that still believe in God, that still trust in God. And here in, here in Nebraska, Omaha and Lincoln, they would have an unseemly amount of influence if it weren't for the fact that across the state you could vote in legislatures that represent your area. So they don't have a choice on the state level but to work together because they don't have the numbers from Lincoln and Omaha. This is government the way it's supposed to work. But we're a democracy. They didn't have that in ancient times. There was no democracy. They weren't voting. God appointed the leader. He did it supernaturally. And the people had to wait for whoever was going to be in charge. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have Manasseh as the king for 50 years? Yeah. Read the book of Kings and Chronicles. 50 years he was on the throne. Or to have to deal with Solomon for 40, the way he taxed the people. He multiplied wives. We complain about whoever we have in office today, and, and I've told you before, they, they've got basically eight years to tear it all up, but then they're gone. Praise the Lord, they're gone. But in eight years, you can do a lot of damage. You can do a lot of damage in four. If you go back 15 or so years and look what happened back when Obama was president and just look at how everything just sped up in the sense that the Supreme Court changed the idea of how we view marriage and so many other things that started the process of degeneration. People say, how did this happen? It started with someone in a position of power and influence. So God and government can work together, but you've got to have government officials that believe in God. And many of the people that we have today don't believe in the king at all. Well, let's go to uh, verse 20 here. Notice it says that his heart not be lifted up. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of him writing and reading it to keep him from pride because a person who's prideful and in position of power is a person that's dangerous. Now, I don't know about you, and since I'm working on God and government, I don't mind talking about uh, politics and stuff like that now, but I don't know about you, but... 
if if I watch somebody who's a press spokesperson for one of the cabinet member officials, I'd rather hear somebody speak the truth rather than just speak the party line and lie. If a policy is bad, say it's bad. But don't just look look everybody in the face and say, well, it's really not as bad as you think it is. And for you that really think that it's bad, it's just because you're idiots. But there are plenty of people who talk like that, but that comes out of a prideful attitude because you arrogate to yourself a position of dominance and influence, and then you believe everybody else is beneath your contempt. How dare somebody ask me a question about what I'm doing? And many of these ancient kings were the same way. You are to be told what to do. You are not to ask me what I'm doing. That's not a good leader. It's not a good leader. If we're wrong, we should say we're wrong. And we should be humble enough to be teachable. The Scripture says that to the end of his days, he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So the king's decisions can affect the children of Israel. One bad decision on behalf of the king could lead thousands of people to die in a war, terrible war. And if they don't have God with them, a whole lot of people unnecessarily die. And, and when we think about this, you can see that some decisions that people make isn't always on behalf of the American people. Sometimes people make decisions because this is good for business, this will be good for politics, this will set me up when I get out of a political situation. If, if a governor understands his role the right way, He's going to do what he can to lead the people in that state, and his main responsibility is to be that state and the people of that state. The governor of Nebraska should not spend his time thinking about how to please the people in Kansas. And the governor in Kansas should not be trying to figure out how to please the people in Iowa. How can I please the people who have chosen me, selected me, that's the same thing with our state legislators. They go to Capitol Hill because they're Republican or Democrat. They just vote the party line. But no, you, you were elected by your particular district, then represent your district. If your district holds views that are conservative, then you can't switch over. You shouldn't switch over because everybody else is saying, I think I ought to take this position. You say, well, there'd be a lot of confusion and chaos and things wouldn't move so quickly on Capitol Hill. It was designed that way. Change in, an, in this nation in particular was supposed to kind of move about at a snail's pace so that you don't lurch to one side or lurch to the other, but because we have people who identify so much with their party, they don't care what their people think. They'll just do whatever they want because this is what the party says. And I know it's true because we can go back in time and look at how Obamacare passed. Yeah. We had one man that could have stopped the entire vote from going forward. But the one man that let it go forward was from here. Our own state, see? Yeah. But the people didn't want it. Go to Acts chapter 17. Let me show you something else. Okay, Acts chapter 17. We're talking about God and government, and so now let's look at quickly our response to some of these things. Wait a minute, did I say 17? Go to 23, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 23. So Paul is standing before the council, 
people of authority. And in verse 2 of Acts 23, the high priest commanded those that stood by him to slap him on the mouth because he said, I have a good conscience before God. So Paul said to that man, notice what he said, it wasn't, it wasn't really nice. He said, God shall smite you, you whited wall. Call them a name. For you sit to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. He said, the law doesn't even allow me to be hit like you just commanded them to hit me. But in verse 4, they said, they that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And, and Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it's written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And that's a quotation from the book of Exodus. So Paul, in dealing with the Roman Empire, and dealing with Jewish people who were corrupt from the emperor on down, where there was brutality and not a lot of forgiveness, these folks had crucified Jesus with the soldiers, but yet Paul, in speaking of them and speaking of the high priest, uses the law to muzzle himself by saying, I shouldn't speak evil of the ruler of the people. So wouldn't that mean that we as Christians, we have to be somewhat careful about how we talk about people in positions of authority? Yeah. Wisdom dictates that we speak the truth, but do it in love. And some of our politicians, when they get up on national television, there is not a lot of love coming out of their lips for one another. They use all kinds of adjectives and descriptions to talk about people. And, of course, you can go anywhere into any one of these coffee clubs here in these towns and sit down with a bunch of old retired farmers and people like that, and you hear all kinds of language that's not good about people that are governing folks. You can probably go into beauty shops and find the same thing. But my point is, we that are Christian that love God, our speech should be different. Now, I have already expressed more kind of dissent in this teaching than you probably heard me do in a long time. But my point is, is very clear to, to help you see you can disagree with someone without sinning, without sinning with your lips. And we should be strong enough to say, I don't agree with that. I think that's unbiblical. I don't think that's righteous. Without being cavalier enough, to just say hideous things about people that are bad. Yeah, that are bad. And some people, they, they, they glory in it. They, they get enjoyment out of just calling people names. You know, if you watch The View sometimes, every now and then when I'm in a doctor's office or something like that, they'll have that on and I'm sitting there looking at these people and they're calling Christians, uh, like the Taliban and, calling them terrorists, and I'm thinking to myself, why, why would you say something like that? Or going back to when, when Little Bush was the president, and, and some of the things they said about him, difficult things, terrible, horrible things. How would you say that about the, the president? Obama, Clinton, I wasn't a fan of either. When I was in the Marine Corps, and Clinton was the president, I can't think of too many policies that man put in motion that I actually believed in. While I was in the Marine Corps, he started a whole don't ask, don't tell thing, which allowed people to be 
homosexual so long as they didn't vocalize it and let anybody know. I was never in favor of anything like that, but I never spent my time running around the barracks and talking with other Marines and calling him names all the time, you see, because there's nothing edifying about that. If somebody asks me what I believed about that, say, that's a sin. It doesn't matter what the president said. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court said. It's a sin. It's wrong. It's bad for America, bad for the family, bad for communities. And it doesn't matter who says it's okay. It's a sin, and it's wrong. And, and that's the proper way to do it. But then you say, okay, how then should we approach some of these things? What should we do? Well, let's go to First Timothy chapter 2. Out here where we live... We live in some of the last bastions that have a degree of morality in the sense that some small towns in America 50 years ago had higher moral standards than the average Christian church today. You understand? Yeah. Well, with, with the way things have changed, then we've got to understand how to confront this because it's obvious to me that Christians being silent isn't working because we've been quiet for so long and look at how the world has just shoved their culture right down our throats and just pushed us backwards so that you have many Christians today, they're the ones in the closet on their job. They don't want anybody to know they're a Christian unless they get persecuted by the people that are around them. I think we ought to be very vocal about what we believe. You've got one chance to live this life. You've got one opportunity to fight the devil, resist the devil, cast the devil out, because when we get to heaven, there won't be any devils. So we fight them now while we can. We fight them with our speech. We fight them with our messages. We fight them with the way that we live. But here's what the Bible says. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're dealing with devils. So how do we handle the flesh and blood? Look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all people, for kings, see, people in authority, presidents, governors, mayors, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So we should pray for people in positions of power. We should remember to pray for them. All these people that run around here saying, well, so-and-so is not my president. Well, as long as you live in the United States of America, he's the president of the United States of America. You don't have to, whether you claim him or not, he's still the president of the United States of America, and, and you've got to accept that. You may not have voted for whoever's the governor. You may not have voted for whoever's the mayor of your town. They're still the mayor of your town. And, and what they are worthy of is the believer's prayer. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever direction he desires. I think if we spend more time praying, maybe we'd have a different government. And if, and if we raised up people out of the church who, 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 who didn't despise government and stuff so, so, uh, in such a bad way, maybe somebody would want to go and, and be in a position where they can have influence and be a mouthpiece. Because we need godly teachers in our public school system. We need godly people in that courthouse. We need godly people 
working in our grocery stores and in our banks. The, the answer cannot be we've got to retreat into a safe haven where we can create an atmosphere that's just faith, hope, and love and where we'll be out of contact with people who don't sin because by being out of contact with them, we can't witness to them, we can't reach them, we can't love them. And you'll never know whether or not you truly are a loving person until you get around some unpleasant people. Mm -hmm. Now, I know through the years that I've been here, 25 years, and I'm sure the Sunday morning crowd would, would say amen with, with a, whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of loudness. There's probably been one or, two, one or two times I probably got on your nerves. One or two times. It's probably been one or two times I, I got up here and preached something or said something that might have just kind of rubbed you the wrong way. But you may not want to love me, but you got to love me if you want to go to heaven. Yeah. There's no option, Bryn. You've you got to love me no matter what pastor does. you got to love me. And, and and in looking back over that, you, you can see what causes some churches to split, some churches to close, some churches to fall apart. It's the whole love factor. We can't get along. We don't want to get along. We just have to speak our mind rather than praying for one another, praying for people in a position of authority in a church. Then we sit around, we gossip, we backbite, we speak evil of one another at the kitchen table and around the living room and that kind of a thing. And when all of that happens, things start falling apart. But if we want harmony and peace in, in that local church, then we got to let God have his way in our lives individually. Yeah, individually. And if he has his way, then that's just one less person that will be a rebel, one less tear, weed, that will be manifested in a local church because we'll be under the dominion of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is true, and we're so grateful for how you lead and how you direct us. I pray you'd help us to be submissive to your will and your way.